Today's episode is brought to you by Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast, and hear from the minds transforming healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more with the help of AI. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What's up? This is your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger, fresh for everyone. The wait is almost over. Get ready for the 2024 NFL season as the full schedule is announced. Every rivalry, every rematch, every rookie debut, every game revealed. The 2024 NFL schedule release, presented by Verizon, coming in May. Live on NFL Network, ESPN2, and streaming on NFL+. Plus. Terms and conditions apply to NFL+. Plus. Visit nfl.com slash schedule release to learn more. Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick, and we're back with part two of our series on fun. Uh, of course, we all roughly know what fun is. You know fun when you see it. You know fun when you're having it. So you got a gut-level understanding. But fun is actually rather difficult to define and to differentiate from other related concepts like pleasure, happiness, and entertainment. So we've been trying to, to tease out some of the, the studies about fun and some observations people can make about fun and what its unique characteristics are. Now, in the last episode, we talked a bit, uh, Rob, you had a section about what particular features make a game fun. And I thought one of the most interesting things you brought up there was the suggestion of a natural association between learning and fun, which is, mm -hmm. is in a way kind of funny because uh, you can think about uh, very painful attempts to to make rote learning, quote, fun in some way, you know, adding games in school that are of, of uh, questionable fun value sometimes, but that could in a way still be onto something because there may in fact be um, a, a major role for fun in the kind of learning that we do in a non-structured way, in a non-school environment, when we're just learning through free exploratory behavior. 
Yeah, yeah, it, it is fascinating to to think about because uh, it made me think back certainly on school days and uh, at various age points and and thinking like, well, when did this? When did it become fun to to engage in this quest for learning? And you know, those, those are the the learning experiences that that do tend to stand out the most. Yeah, I have similar experiences. A lot of what I remember most from school are the things that were the most fun in school. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so uh, I wanted to talk about a paper that I came across that I found pretty interesting. I think, again, this only addresses one facet of the issue of fun, so this is not going to give you a total view. Uh, But it was a really interesting child psychology paper from 2007 addressing the relationship between toys, fun, and a child's ability to control natural experiments. So this paper was by a couple of authors named Laura E. Schultz and Elizabeth Bariff Bonowitz. Now, for some context, I was checking out uh, particularly some of the other research by uh, Laura Schultz. She actually has a a, a pretty good TED Talk where she explains uh, sort of the the arc of her career. It's from a few years back. But uh, Schultz is a professor of cognitive sciences at MIT, and a lot of her research is focused on the question, how do children learn so well? Uh, Because children are able to learn how the world works in a relatively short time with relatively limited experiences. I mean, people often phrase this question about language in particular, I think because language acquisition is just one of the most amazing things. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's, it's astounding, like the way children acquire language. Like, how do you learn to put together infinitely variable grammatically functional sentences just by listening to adults talk for a few years. Like you don't even have to be taught the rules of grammar. You know, when you learn grammar in school, the grammar you're learning there is basically just an analytical tool or maybe an attempt to kind of regularize or normalize exactly the way you construct sentences, but you're, you're already able to do so in a functional way. I mean, where people can understand you. Yeah, the neuroplasticity of, of children is just absolutely amazing. I know we've we've touched on it a few times over the over the years, and yeah, it's it's fascinating to learn about. It's it's mind blowing to experience in in real life and real time. Though you sort of lose some of the mystery at times uh, by being so close to it, mm-hmm. but uh, but yeah, like the, they they have to acquire so much data in such a short period of time. And I think another weird thing of thinking about this and thinking about it too for this episode in terms of fun and also, you know, talking about games and toys and the imagination as we'll get into is that we we live in a time now where I I feel like we we definitely have more understanding of what children are and when what they're not and, and what they're doing and that all these things have a purpose. But it's so easy to sort of fall back in this older way of thinking and look at a child playing a child having fun and think, well, of course they're having fun. They don't have anything else to do. They don't have a job. Uh, yeah. <laughs> look at these, look at these bumps, but this is frivolous <laughs> activity, right? Uh, it's, it's for some reason, it's still easy to think, think that way. But of course we, we know better now. We know that the reality of it is that part of what makes children, children is that they are these sponges. They are absorbing all of this information and then processing it, uh, coming to terms with it. And so a lot of the, the ideas that, that we're discussing in, in this episode, uh, uh, you know, so some of the ones that I'm going to get into are, are certainly not the only theories out there, but a lot of them do involve this, this more nuanced vision of the child and what the child is doing in the world. 
Yeah, play is a child's job. It is them, they're going to school, but in an unstructured way. Play is how they, uh, not just, you know, uh, you mentioned it's important for them to gather a lot of data, and that is true, but another way of thinking about it, children are able to generalize inferences about how things work uh, with way less data than you would expect, say, a computer to need, uh, a certain kind of program to need in order to learn how something works. So how do children make such powerful general inferences? How do they figure out rules about how the world works on the basis of so little experience? I think play is a big part of this. Um, and so the paper I wanted to look at again, this is by Laura E. Schultz and Elizabeth Baroff Bonowitz. It's called Serious Fun. Preschoolers engage in more exploratory play when evidence is confounded. This was published in the journal Developmental Psychology in the year 2007. And this study looks at a concept that it calls causal knowledge, meaning an understanding of cause and effect relationships in the environment. Another way of thinking about it is just understanding how things work. Now, obviously, a major part of child development is this formation of general causal knowledge, learning that if you set a spherical object down on a table and you let go of it, it can roll off the edge, or learning that if you turn a doorknob, it will open a door, or learning that if you pet the cat too roughly, the cat might hiss and scratch you. The world is full of these cause and effect relationships, and to learn how the world works, you have to not only learn, but you have to learn how to learn. You have to, to some extent, understand when a relationship between two events that you observe is causal and when that relationship is just random or safe to ignore. So you have to learn how to tell the difference between, okay, I pet the cat too rough and it gets angry. That's clearly causal. Like the not being gentle with the cat is what made it angry versus, oh, I'm plucking at the carpet and then a bird lands on the windowsill. Somehow a child usually figures out that that is not actually causal. That's just random. Hmm. So how does a young child master all of this complex inference? Uh, I think you know, I was just thinking about this and I think some inference might be helped along by maybe instinctive heuristics, like physical proximity, like how close is what I did to the effect that it might have produced? Are they physically connected in some way that I can see? Obviously this wouldn't always be the case, uh, especially in a world full of, you know, uh, remote electronics and stuff like that, but that would help a little bit. Another way of uh, sifting through inferences to separate the good from the bad is just by repeating experiments. Whatever you just did, do it again and see if the same result happens. Of course, this is useful in, in actual scientific experiments. You know, you want to repeat experiments to see if you get the same result. But you can observe children naturally doing this all the time. They'll do something and look for a result and then they'll do it again and they'll do it again. Of course, in general, children just love repetition. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, and you might you might plausibly argue that there's a kind of built-in science module in in the mm -hmm. child's brain. I mean, it's not going to be as refined as a as a carefully scrutinized uh, scientific method planned by adults, but you could say that there's some kind of instinct for repetition that might be based on the fact that repeating experiments gets you better data. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, uh, maybe that's what's going on when, when generally if there's something funny, I've noticed that with, with kids, like they, they figure out a, a joke that works, whether they're going to keep telling that joke, keep telling mm-hmm. that joke. And then I guess part of the learning experiment is realizing like how far, how many times can you tell that joke and it still elicits a response? Uh, yes. What, what are the hard limits to it? So the authors of this developmental psychology paper are talking about children's acquisition of causal knowledge. And uh, they write that basically since Jean Piaget, psychologists have mostly accepted that children construct their causal model of the world through exploratory play. Like this is not something having having causal knowledge is not usually something that has to be explicitly taught by adults though and of course in some limited cases it can be and it's not something that just comes as fully built-in hardwired instinct it's something that children learn through experimenting with the world on their own so under this model a major function of play is learning specifically learning to predict cause and effect relationships in the world now, if this model is true, you would expect to see evidence of that if you just observe the natural patterns of exploratory play behavior in children. And the authors isolate one major finding which does seem to back up this model of the acquisition of causal knowledge, and that is children's preference for novel stimuli. Uh, so the authors don't phrase it this way, but just my interpretation, I think it, it, it would connect to the idea of like, why do children want a new toy when they already have toys at home? I I think you could argue that at least in part, this could be because they already know how the old toy works. They've used it in a hundred different ways. They've figured out all the different things that it can do and what it does when you do different things to it. And a new toy provides opportunities to learn new things about something else, something different. Yeah, this, this of course is is frequently a, a parental uh, comment about uh, the um, ephemeral interest in toys. Right, you get the the fancy new toy; it's played with for a day, and then it's on the floor. And then we quite hypocritically will say, well, why aren't you still playing with that toy? And if if the child were savvy, they might say, well, you have top gun on vhs why aren't you still watching that why did you stop watching that movie why isn't that your just go-to movie you like to watch movies you own one watch it um you know we're, we're not that that different in that regard uh, another big one of course is there's the there's the old toy versus new toy but the, something that's always more interesting other kids toys mm. uh, whenever you take the the child out and you're you're i don't know you're at a friend's house or or at a park and somebody's brought a toy like the the toy of the other child is is in, instantly interesting for this very reason because it is the new toy it is the novel toy well, that seems like it might have a double appeal because not only is it novel, so it has the appeal that all new things do, but it also has been sort of pre-vetted. Like if some other kid is playing mm-hmm. with it, that shows like, okay, there probably is something good about this toy and it would be worth my time. Right. And yeah. And then also there's the social dynamics of this thing is also desired and yeah. uh, ownership may be uh, up in the air on it. But uh, this is all fascinating thinking about about something about about the, the novel factor here because it w- once again makes us think of fun and uh, and the idea of learning from the the last episode. So if, even if you're just thinking about an object, right? Like it's there's something even if it's just a tactile experience, you're interested in in you know, what does it feel like? What happens when I uh, throw it against a wall, etc.? And of course, all of this reminds me once more about the connection that we we're looking at uh, between fun and learning. 
Right, because this paper is looking at a connection between learning and exploratory play behavior. This is beyond the scope of the paper itself, but I think it is a a totally reasonable inference to believe that the primary intrinsic motivating factor driving exploratory play is fun. So like fun is the is the wages that are paid for the work of play. Yeah. I'm thinking of a, a biblical parallelism is the wages the wages of play is fun. It's got to be the <laughs> singular is, right? Yeah. <laughs> Shout out to Astapro for sponsoring this episode and providing us with free samples. Rob, as the uh, the local host with allergies here, they sent you some of their nasal spray to treat your allergies. What was your experience like? Yeah, that's right. I always wrestle with the pollen a bit when it rolls in during the spring. So they sent me the little uh, nasal spray. I tried out the product and yeah, it sure did help me get on top of my symptoms for the day. And it's so fast acting, uh, it was already kicking in before I left the house. Astapro is a first-of-its-kind nasal allergy spray. It's the fastest 24-hour over-the-counter allergy spray. It starts working in 30 minutes, while other allergy sprays take hours. Astapro is the first and only 24-hour steroid-free allergy spray. Astapro delivers full prescription-strength indoor and outdoor allergy relief from nasal congestion, runny and itchy nose, and sneezing. Get fast-acting nasal allergy symptom relief with Astapro. Go to astaproallergy.com for a discount so you can get Astapro and go today. A-S-T-E-P-R-O allergy.com. Astapro and go. Use this directed for relief of nasal congestion, runny nose, sneezing, and itchy nose due to allergies. Today's episode is brought to you by eBay. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then, through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles in a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Look to your left. Look to your right. It's official. No one's got a ride like this. There's nothing else that sounds like, feels like, or looks like the set of wheels in your garage. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly so there's no limit to how far you can take it. Brake kits, turbochargers, engines, exhaust kits, roof racks, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Today's episode is brought to you by Visible. If you haven't heard of Visible, now you have. They're the wireless carrier that's making wireless visible. It's in the name. Get a one-line plan with unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon. Just $25 a month, every month. Taxes and fees included. Having a one-line plan means you only need you to save. No estranged roommates, exes, cousins twice removed, or AI-powered humanoid robots needed. And because $25 a month really means $25 a month, you can call, text, stream, whatever, as much as you want without worrying about getting dinged at the end of the month. No hidden fees, no surprises. No, really. It's like the old saying goes, you can't judge a book by its cover, but you can judge a company by its name. So spread the word. Tell all your friends there's a wireless company out there with transparency in their name, and they're called Visible. Start saving on wireless today at Visible.com. 
Monthly rate on the Visible plan for data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can conquer it. I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. Any road. The steeper, the better. Because my all-new Santa Fe is available with H-Track all-wheel drive, so I can hit the trail without a worry in the world. Heck, with three rows and best-in-class rear cargo space, I can pack the whole family in with all our gear. We've got available dual wireless charging for our phones, so we'll never lose touch with civilization, and we won't lose touch with the primordial power of Mother Earth. So which is it? Waste the weekend or do something a little more epic and conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. But anyway, so coming back to the, the author's introduction on this paper, they say, you know, at the time this paper was written, there was actually not a whole lot of evidence for consistent patterns that had been observed in the exploratory behavior of children. Uh, and so they're, they're going to uh, study one pattern in this experiment they're setting up. But uh, as, as preface to that, they write, quote, Moreover, considerable research suggests that even older children and naive adults are poor at designing causally informative experiments and have difficulty anticipating the type of evidence that would support or undermine causal hypotheses. And then they cite a whole bunch of studies to back up this assertion. Um, they write, quote, such findings pose a challenge for the constructivist account. The number of events children might explore in principle is vastly greater than the number of events they can explore in practice. If children's exploratory play is largely unsystematic, how might they generate the type of evidence that could support efficient causal learning? So this is a really interesting paradox. It seems very likely that children learn causal knowledge by exploratory play, and yet children don't seem by and large to be very good at designing causally informative experiments like that they they have trouble separating out uh variables and and stuff like that Nevertheless, children might have some instincts about how to sift some different types of evidence. Uh, and the authors hypothesize that exploratory play in children might not only be drawn toward novelty, such as here's a new toy, or to perceptual complexity, but also to what they call the quality of evidence they observe. That there might be a relationship between a child's desire to play with something and what type of evidence they are getting from it or have already gotten from it. From it. Maybe even young children who are not so great at designing experiments can, in, in some senses, tell the difference between informative evidence and uninformative evidence. They can make predictions based on those differences, and they're driven to continue playing based on those differences. So what would be the experiment to test this? Well, they tried this out on a group of 64 preschoolers uh, between 48 and 70 months of age. This was an experiment staged at a, uh, at a, a children's museum. And the experiment goes like this. You've got a special toy built for the experiment. And the toy takes the form of a box with a slot at the top and two levers on the sides. In reality, each lever, when you press it, causes one of two different figures to pop up out of uh, the slot at the top of the box. There's a puppet figure operated by one lever and a little duck operated by a different lever. 
Now, there were several experimental conditions. One was what they called the confounded evidence condition, uh, and the others were all uh, three different types of unconfounded evidence conditions. The difference being that in the unconfounded conditions, the child would one way or another get to witness or experience unambiguous evidence of how the box worked. So they would see the levers being operated separately and they would figure out which lever made which little figure pop up. But in the confounded condition, there would be unresolved ambiguity after their initial experience with the box. Uh, so the difference was that like in the unconfounded conditions, uh, there would be a procedure where the, a, the child and an adult experimenter would count to three and then each press a lever at the same time. And then after that, they would take turns counting to three and pressing or operating one or the other lever independently for a total of three presses. But in the end, the child would get to see how, what each one did in the confounded condition, the child and the experimenter would always each press their lever at the same time on the count of three. So it would never be clear to the child which lever did what. Either lever could operate each of the figures, or one lever could operate both of them, or maybe both levers had to be pressed at the same time to make them pop up. There would be no way to know based on pressing them at the same time as the experimenter. Anyway, so you'd have these different conditions, and then at the end of each one, the experimenter would walk away and tell the child it was okay for them to play with whatever they wanted. And that, so then they had the option to keep playing with the box from the procedure or reach for a novel box that was also within arm's reach that hadn't been part of the experiment yet. So what did they find? Well, the previous uh, findings from other studies about children's preferences for novelty came through. The kids very often reached for and spent more time playing with the new toy instead of the toy they had already played with. But whether or not there was lingering causal ambiguity about the original box made a big difference. In the unconfounded conditions, where it was clear how the box worked, they spent more time playing with the novel toy. But in the confounded condition, where the original toy remained a mystery, they spent more time playing with the original box that they had already played with. And this suggests that a lack of good evidence about how an object works is a strong motivating factor driving children towards spending time in exploratory play with that object. And in some way, most children can tell when the evidence that they're aware of is sufficient to understand the workings of the box or not. Hmm. Now, there was one uh, funny little note in their results section where they write that in the confounded condition where the child hadn't been able to see the levers operated independently, so didn't know how it worked. Um, they write, quote, in the course of their free play with the fam familiar box, children often manipulated the levers simultaneously. Critically, however, 12 of the 16 children or seven, 75% also manipulated each lever separately, fully disambiguating the evidence. Uh, so I thought that was funny that they would they would be curious about, OK, there would some part of them would know I haven't yet figured out how this box works. And yet what they would do when they got hold of it often was initially repeat the same thing that they had already seen happen, which is pressing both levers at the same time, which doesn't tell you anything more than they already learned. So like, like they know that something's wrong, but they, they don't always immediately figure out how to disambiguate the confounded evidence. Hmm. Yeah, this is fascinating. It made me, made me think of like, just of course, just sort of basic 
toy interactions. Like it made me think for some reason of the Panic Pete. Did you do you remember the Panic Pete? I'm uh, not sure. It's toy. N- not yet. Describe it to me. A little pink sort of limbless clown uh, from outer space. And if you squeeze him, then the red balls that are in his nose and uh, ear holes pop out, and also oh, oh. the blue eyes of his, the blue balls of his eye sockets. Yes, I understand Panic Pete now. Yeah, I seem to recall a scene in Jurassic Park where Wayne Knight is squeezing one of these oh, while he's uh, <laughs> chatting with uh, Mr. Hammond, right? Oh, you may be right. I forgot about that. But yeah, but it, you know, it's one of these things where if you if you bust out this toy in front of a child and you squeeze it, you know what the child is going to want to do the child needs to squeeze that toy as well to witness this to 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 have the the feeling of uh, of being the, the the individual in power over the Pete doll uh, and then it's and, and then of course this would not be a, tre- a treasured toy for all eternity they would squeeze it however many of t- many times and then you abandon it because it's it's been used uh, panic Pete has fulfilled all your curiosity and even as a an, an adult like that would basically be your experience with a panic Pete um, if someone gave you one you would be like oh okay I'll squeeze this a few times interesting i have now consumed all of the necessary data and i may set the panic pete aside well even thinking about like uh seeing somebody else squeeze the panic pete and then um wanting to squeeze it yourself i mean i do think there is there are some interesting mysteries that like could fill the child's mind before they get a chance to try it out which is like okay would just squeezing it normally make it make the eyes pop out and the ears pop out mm-hmm. and everything or do i need to squeeze it a special way is it possible i could squeeze it and it wouldn't work and then what would i need to figure out how to do yeah could i what if i have uh, pushed the eyeballs in while squeezing the body what would that do you know there are all these these sort of different ways it's almost like a you know, sort of a play testing of it, you know, like, like what, what are the, what are the limits of the design? How can I sort of break the design? Like children want to do that naturally. And I mean, that's one of the ways that toys get broken uh, because yeah. uh, the child doesn't, doesn't know uh, the limits of the design yet. That's a great point. Yeah. The, the, the play, the, the toy is often played to extinction. Mm-hmm. Uh, when the, you know, they like the, the, the bounds of science go too far. Yeah, like only an adult would say, well, don't squeeze Panic Pete too much. Um, We want him to look good on the shelf. No, no, that's not the child way. But so anyway, to come back to the study, I think this result is really interesting that children seem to be more motivated to play with a familiar object if they haven't yet been given evidence of how all the different parts of that object work. Mm -hmm. And this appears true, so they can figure out some things uh, about what uh, the difference between confounded and unconfounded evidence is. And at the same time, there are all these findings that suggest that children have at least a poor metacognitive ability to design experiments and explain concepts like confounded evidence. And yet at some gut level, they do, they are able to make stuff like that work in practice. Uh, and the author is right. Quote, the exploratory play of even very young children appears to reflect some of the logic of scientific inquiry. Hmm. And so, of course, coming back to the idea of what is the intrinsic motivation driving most exploratory play, I I would say overwhelmingly it is fun. So I think this is a really interesting piece of evidence that not only is fun in young children probably related to learning how things work, a sense of fun can be generated to some extent by making the evidence of how something works remain obscure or ambiguous. 
And this reminds me of play patterns I remember from my own childhood when like, especially with certain kinds of uh, electronic toys, you know, like a toy that would play one of a number of horribly annoying pre-recorded sounds or sayings. Um, if it would just play them in the same order, so like you could cycle through them and they'd always be in the same order instead of randomized. I remember being kind of disappointed once I realized that I knew the whole cycle of sounds by heart. And this kind of meant the fun was over. Like I'd figure it out and that'd be like, Oh, kind of satisfying feeling. And then it's like, well, this toy is dead now. Uh, you know, it's all, it's like the feeling of fun I got from pressing the button and making the noise was part of a drive for discovery of causal knowledge. And once I had the knowledge firmly in hand, there was not much more fun to be had with that thing, except maybe by making other people react to it. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Like I, I think back on, on my own play patterns, I remember like GI Joe figures, the old GI Joe figures. And I remember reaching a point where it was, you know, I did a lot of imagination play with them, but also got to the point where, oh, I have this tiny screwdriver. And so now I can take yeah. them all apart and I can put them together in different ways. And of course, you end up with just a tub of parts and a few assembled um, uh, 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 soldiers. Mm -hmm. And I, I see pretty much a very similar thing with, with my son's uh, Lego obsession is, you know, he'll, he'll build the thing. Uh, he'll make his own changes to it. If it's particularly special, it may live on a shelf and, and sort of have its shelf life as being a decoration. But generally, uh, even if it's on the shelf, it may be stripped for parts to create some new thing. And mm -hmm. so, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's easy for me to come in and, and be like, well, what, what happened to this thing you built? Now it's pieces. Um, but like, that's part of the process. That's part of playing with it. It's the, 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 once you've built it and played with it a little bit, it's no longer novel. It's uh, let's move on to the creation of the next thing. So anyway, I, I thought that study was very interesting. And though this is beyond the scope of it, it also makes me think, uh, about the link even in adults between fun and concepts like surprise and mystery. I, I think there's often a, a strong connection there. Yeah, yeah. That like anything you would, you know, any kind of, uh, you know, movie you're watching, book you're reading, whatever that has like a sense of surprise or mystery in it, in a way that's sort of keeping you in the fun spirit, even like a childhood with a novel toy, be because you haven't yet figured out all the mechanics, like it's not clear how it works. Yeah, I mean, to come back to video games, for example, I mean, there's there's completing the game, right? There's completing the story. There's there's also finding the Easter eggs, finding the hidden things in it, um, mm. and then perhaps getting into the glitches, finding ways, figuring out where the seams are, uh, where the imperfections are, and you know, whatever your level, like it's it's ultimately all about figuring out the thing, understanding mm. the thing, learning the thing. Today's episode is brought to you by eBay. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then, through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles in a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Look to your left. Look to your right. It's official. No one's got a ride like this. There's nothing else that sounds like, feels like, or looks like the set of wheels in your garage. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly so there's no limit to how far you can take it. 
brake kits, turbochargers, engines, exhaust kits, roof racks, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Today's episode is brought to you by Visible. If you haven't heard of Visible, now you have. They're the wireless carrier that's making wireless visible. It's in the name. Get a one-line plan with unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon. Just $25 a month, every month. Taxes and fees included. Having a one-line plan means you only need you to save. No estranged roommates, exes, cousins twice removed, or AI-powered humanoid robots needed. And because $25 a month really means $25 a month, you can call, text, stream, whatever, as much as you want without worrying about getting dinged at the end of the month. No hidden fees, no surprises. No, really. It's like the old saying goes, you can't judge a book by its cover, but you can judge a company by its name. So spread the word. Tell all your friends there's a wireless company out there with transparency in their name, and they're called Visible. Start saving on wireless today at Visible.com. Monthly rate on the Visible plan for data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can conquer it. I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. Any road. The steeper, the better. Because my all-new Santa Fe is available with H-Track all-wheel drive, so I can hit the trail without a worry in the world. Heck, with three rows and best-in-class rear cargo space, I can pack the whole family in with all our gear. We've got available dual wireless charging for our phones, so we'll never lose touch with civilization, and we won't lose touch with the primordial power of Mother Earth. So which is it? Waste the weekend, or do something a little more epic? And conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Today's episode is brought to you by Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast from Ruby Studio in partnership with Intel. Explore the future of technology that's rapidly evolving our world today with the help of AI. There's still so much work and research needed to fully understand the power and potential of AI, and Intel is at the forefront of implementing AI in revolutionary technology that's changing the world we live in for the better. In each episode, Graham interviews the minds transforming medicine and healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more while pioneering new uses for AI in these spaces. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Now, on the subject of fun and toys, there, you know, there's, of course, that additional layer of the imagination we've alluded to already. You know, mm-hmm. it's one thing to figure out the physical properties of, say, a stuffed teddy bear and how it interacts with the world. Uh, very young children often seem 
kind of limited to this. You know, you hand them the stuffed bear and what do they do? Well, they throw the bear against the wall or they throw the bear across the car and then you hand it back to them and they do it again. It's just endless fun. Um, and if you were, and if, and if you're expecting a child like that to, to spend more time snuggling the bear or, or, or giving the, the bear a little picnic, you might be disappointed because nothing is as fun as throwing the bear against the wall. But I mean, let's, bit, you know, let's not under, I mean, throwing <laughs> is fun. I like throwing oh, yeah. stuff too. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and of course it, in, in a social engagement like this too, you're also, you're not just playing with the bear. You're also playing with the adult. You're getting a, a rise out of the adult. Like they're running right. to get it. It's big fun. Right. Yeah. In a way, the other person there is also the toy. Right. But, but then there is the level of the teddy bears picnic. Uh, there's the level of, of teddy bears battling each other, uh, battling other stuffed animals, um, the various battles, discoveries, adventures that toys may go on. And so there's a whole domain of fun and, uh, with toys and certainly uh, even fun without physical totems as well that I think we might well consider fun. I mean, it's just, it's fun to engage your imagination in these scenarios. And, mm-hmm. um, and these aren't really games per se. Like if teddy bears are having a picnic, unless the child, uh, I don't know, has a, has just a, a very gifted, uh, mind for game design, there's probably not a, a game <laughs> mechanic to what's going on. Likewise, if teddy bears are battling each other or action figures are exploding all over the living room. Right. And in fact, I would say children often have very poor instincts about how to design a fun game. Yeah. Oh, good God. Yes. I've, yeah. Occasionally there will be a game that has been designed and I'll be asked to, to play it. And um, I mean, it's great. It's great that the mind is already going there, but uh, you know, yeah. early game design is often a bit clunky. Though they have better examples than, than, than I feel like I did as a kid. Like mm-hmm. I remember designing horrible games as a, as a child, but I, I had horrible examples to go off of for the most part. Yeah. So these activities, you know, they're not really games. Uh, they, again, they lack any uh, you know, rule structure. Instead, they seem to be orchestrated dramas of the mind that use physical totems and idols. And this is interesting because unlike some of the previous examples, it seems at least like there's less of a firm connection to learning, right? At least at first it may seem that way because what is being learned at the teddy bear's picnic? You already know what the bear is. You're not unlocking some mystery of the object, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, and it, but if it, on the other hand, if it's not learning as fun, then what's going on here? Why is the child doing it? This child who, again, is this sponge that has to take in all of this data about the world and, um, and, and essentially uh, you know, form an adult mind out of it all. Well, yeah, but I see what you're saying about that even though it's harder to see exactly how imagination plays about learning, I would probably liken it to uh, you know, the difference between Uh, imagination play and playing with a physical object like a toy that has mechanics is kind of the difference between a thought experiment and a physical experiment. A thought experiment can still be informative. It's just it's just informative in a looser way. Like it relies on you having good intuitions about what's plausible and what would happen without checking against the laws of physics. Yeah. Yeah. That, that I think that does get to some of what seems to be going on here. And uh, now I want to drive home that we're not doing an exhaustive uh, look at imagination play here. There's a lot of scholarship out there about mm-hmm. imagination play and early childhood learning. Uh, but so I'm just essentially carving out like a few thoughts on this here that I think play well with what we've been discussing in these uh, these fun episodes. But uh, in the context of humor, 
on the past uh, episodes of Stuff to Blow Your Mind, we've discussed incongruity theory before, or more formally and clearly, incongruity resolution theory. Some incongruity in the world is observed, and by resolving it, and if we're talking about humor, we're talking about cracking a joke or, you know, or, or engaging with humor of some kind, we reduce the tension that that incongruity created. Mm-hmm. And in doing so, we release a feeling of joy. Just a quick reminder that in that uh, fun, fun, fun study that we talked about in the previous episode, uh, where people were asked to remember a fun situation and then uh, later circle all of the words that described it accurately, the number one word circled was happiness or happy, but the number two was laughing. So there's clearly Mm -hmm. a strong natural association people have between the idea of fun and between and humor. Yeah. Yeah. So it would be natural that there would be some overlap between these, these areas of study. So uh, in particular, this time around though, I was looking at a book uh, by, uh, by uh, Dorothy G and Jerome L Singer from 2009 titled the house of make believe that I thought had some insightful content in it. Uh, One quote from the book here, quote, playful interactions between self and others, or in the case of pure fantasy play, self and symbolic others, or between self and objects usually results in a somewhat reduced level of novelty or incongruity that evokes joy. So the idea of tackling novelty here, this is this is interesting because it does seem, the more we focus on it in these episodes, it seems like we're driven to understand something to the point of making it mundane. We're like, give me that novelty so I can destroy all of its allure. And once the allure has been drained from it, then I will discard it or I'll put it on the shelf, etc. Yeah, it's like I want to suck all of the fun out of this thing and make it not fun anymore in the process. <laughs> like the fun is almost a, a you know, it's it's not actually a physical substance in the ob- object, but it might as well be. And once you have drained it by extracting all of the novel information that you can get from it, you've done all the experiments you can, now you've taken the fun and it's gone. Right. <laughs> So it's easy to understand that with the object, like the the, the panic peat, you know, you, you yeah. squeeze it, squeeze it until it's no, no longer fun anymore, and then you get rid of it. But the world is full of novel and incongruous things, situations, feelings, and more. Um, so uh, these are all things that the, the the child has to has to has to make sense of and to process. There's a lot of data coming in, and the kid has to deal with it. Uh, so th- this is just one theory naturally, but the idea here is that examples of imagination play dip into the world of simulation and control of incongruous re- realities that help us help better prepare us for those realities. And the control factor is key here as well, because we're generally considering incongruity in the adult world that children certainly have no control over. Like there's something, there's something strange in the adult world that you don't fully understand. um, And you certainly don't have control over it, but Mm -hmm. then by engaging in imaginative play you sort of create a model of it, a model of what might be going on or what you've come to understand is going on. And and it's one that you can control and manipulate. Yeah, it seems like a lot of the imaginative play behaviors of children are uh, creating and trying to mimic scenarios that they would have observed in the adult world, either you know in person or in media some way, uh, that they don't fully understand, that they partially but don't fully understand, and trying to act it out or imagine it out, maybe to somehow better grasp how it works. Yeah, yeah. 
they the authors here also point out, citing uh, Diana Schmuckler's work, they point out that brief stories, be they real stories or fictions or myths, etc., they assist children in the creation of schemas or scripts, which, when matched with previously formed schemas or scripts, can help to reduce fear or confusion brought on by novelty and incongruity in the world. And I found that really interesting because it reminds me of... Um, a lot of what what I would hear uh, as a parent, uh, especially early on uh, with our son, uh, hearing uh, uh, like the the doctor you know ask about imagination play and like well what does the imagination play consist of and so forth, and 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 certainly parents can think of all sorts of strange or hilarious examples of this too. It's not just a situation where the children are going to just carry out the same story over and over again that they've heard. No, there will be tweaks. There will be changes, and. Mm-hmm. And in to to the parents' mind, it might be strange. Like, okay, you're doing you're reenacting this battle from Star Wars, but the Pokemon are here as well. And yes. of course, they're just you know, or, or there are probably better examples of that, and probably more like sort of personally poignant examples of that. But it's the taking of these scripts, these schemas, and combining them with other schemas, putting twists on them, and 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 then controlling. It's like little thought experiments carried mm-hmm. out over and over again. And I, I think sometimes it's observed where like there'll be something like a death and a, a child will take death and introduce death into the imagination play of a given scenario. And like that's yeah. clearly a part of processing what this means. Like here's this this huge um, alarming, potentially traumatizing thing that happens and, and you know, perhaps you haven't been, been that well prepared for it. Uh, where can you test that out? Where can you process that? Where can you take some of the edge off of that but in play? Introducing the unfamiliar into the play makes it fun. It keeps it fun. Yeah, yeah. That's another. That's that's another important yeah thing to think about. Like, there's this. We're we're drawn to novelty. Well, if if you begin to employ your imagination, you can keep making something novel. You can keep interjecting the injecting the novel into the scenario, into the into the toy itself, even. And the game that reminds me too. Coming back to games, uh, like what is what? What do you do when you have a successful game that resonates with people? Well, it's you got to bust out some uh, some DLC, right? You got to bust out some mm-hmm. expansions for your board game. You got to bust out eventually a sequel, and you 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 stay true to some extent, but you add new features. You add new. You make the, the familiar novel again, and that's the key to success. Oh, I mean, I think about the ways that when I was a kid, we would take a familiar a game with physically familiar mechanics such as tag and -hmm. just sort of skin it over with we are these characters chasing each other you know we are from this movie or and and it would change yeah you're still playing chase but it takes on this different imaginative dimension i wonder i wonder if anybody's ever experimented with this you know kids playing a common game like tag or something and uh, trying out, okay, now if you imagine yourself as these characters while playing, does it change the way they play the game? Do they do anything physically different? Oh, I bet. I, I, I'm almost certain they do, uh, especially if, if it involves really embodying certain characters or animals. I've certainly observed uh, kids playing tag where they'll, yeah, they're all going to be cats and dogs. And it does seem <laughs> to change the way that they, they play. Uh, sometimes it's a little frightening because they're like, oh man, they're really... They're really acting like animals out there. Anyway, I think I think this is all interesting to to think about. But again, I want to drive home that 
that obviously uh, early childhood development and childhood learning, again, huge field, lots of work within those fields. We're only looking at a few examples here. So please don't take anything we're saying here. It's like this is this is the golden and, uh, and only truth uh, concerning uh, childhood play and imagination, et cetera. All right. Well, I think maybe we're going to need to call part two of our series on fun there. We may, in fact, be back with a part three. We'll we'll leave that as a surprise for you. You got to figure out how our how our podcast feed works. You know, we're we're not going to give you all the clues ahead of time. Right. That podcast feed, by the way, is, of course, the Stuff to Blow Your Mind podcast feed, where you'll find core episodes on Tuesdays and Thursdays. On Mondays, we do listener mail. On Wednesdays, we do a short form artifact or monster fact. And on Fridays, we do Weird House Cinema. That's our time to set aside most serious concerns and just talk about a fun and weird film. Huge thanks, as always, to our excellent audio producer, Seth Nicholas Johnson. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future, or just to say hello, you can email us at contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com. Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app. Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Today's episode is brought to you by Visible. The future of wireless is here, and it's transparent. Switch to Visible, the wireless company that makes wireless visible. Get a one-line plan with unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon. Just $25 a month, every month, taxes and fees included. No hidden fees, no surprises, no, really. What are you waiting for? Get with the times and switch to Visible at Visible.com. Monthly rate on the Visible plan for data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com. The wait is almost over. Get ready for the 2024 NFL season as the full schedule is announced. Every rivalry, every rematch, every rookie debut, every game revealed. The 2024 NFL schedule release presented by Verizon coming in May. Live on NFL Network, ESPN2, and streaming on NFL+. Terms and conditions apply to NFL+. Visit nfl.com slash schedule release to learn more. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Rev up your thrills this summer at Cedar Point on the all-new Top Thrill 2. Drive the sky on the world's tallest and fastest triple-launch vertical speedway. And now, for a limited time, get more Cedar Point fun for less with our limited-time bundle for just $49.99. Get admission, parking, and all-day drinks for one low price. But you better hurry, because this bundle won't last long. Save now at cedarpoint.com.